0: Takes is a podcast from BCA Research, informing investors with straightforward, actionable analysis of macro and market events. Hi there, and welcome to the Quick Takes podcast. I'm your host, Rukhaya Ibrahim, strategist at BCA Research. There's been a sharp deterioration in global economic conditions and the performance of financial assets in 2022. Now, as we approach the end of the year, the main question facing investors is whether there are grounds to expect an improvement in 2023. This week, my colleague Jonathan LaBerge is joining me on the podcast to give BCA's answer to this question. Jonathan heads up BCA's bank credit analyst service, which recently published BCA's annual outlook for 2023. He will discuss the likelihood that the U.S. experiences a recession next year and what that implies in terms of how investors should position themselves in 2023. Welcome to the podcast, Jonathan. Thanks for joining me.
1: Thanks a lot, Rukaya. Thanks for having me on.
0: So last week, BCA's Bank Credit Analyst Service, which you had, published BCA's annual outlook for 2023. For our listeners, it's essentially a transcript of a conversation between BCA strategists and longtime BCA clients, Mr. X and his daughter, Ms. X, about the outlook for the economy and financial markets over the coming 12 months. Uh, Now, of course, there are some differences of opinion among BCA strategists about this outlook. For example, as you know, Jonathan, Doug Pita, who, by the way, recently joined me on this podcast, is more optimistic about the near-term outlook for the U.S. economy and equities than most of the rest of us at BCA. But the annual outlook that was just published essentially captures the majority view within BCA. And perhaps the most important question that was asked during the conversation with Mr. Mizex is about the likelihood of a recession in the U.S. next year. So, Jonathan, what are the indicators and historical comparisons signaling about these odds in 2023?
1: So, first off, thanks. I really appreciate that you mentioned that the annual outlook is sort of the aggregate opinion of the firm. For those who are listening who you know may not be as familiar with the bank credit analyst service, the bank credit analyst isn't, when I write it, it is, in fact, my view, although it hues closely to the BCA house view, but the annual outlook is actually different, it's special, and it really is a uh, an aggregation uh, of the plurality of strategists, if you want to call it that at BCA. And as you noted, yes, we have some view differences internally, but at the end of the day, we did need the outlook forced us to have a discussion, as you know, you were part of that, uh, about what we expect for the year as a whole. And it, it indeed was the case, you mentioned that this question of a US recession. It was indeed the case that a plurality of of senior strategists at BCA Research said, yes, that they expect that there in fact will be the onset of a recession next year in 2023, Or that we're going to see a, because of course financial markets lead what happens in the actual economy, that even if there's a recession that begins, let's call it very early in 2024, that we're likely to see significant decline in risky asset prices next year in anticipation of that recession, regardless of whether or not it happens to happen in the first half of next year, second half of next year, or very early in 2024. So, you know, we laid it out in the outlook what the basis for this and I mean, it's fairly straightforward. It's not as complicated as perhaps some people outside of the firm or, or market, other market commentators are making it out to be. I mean, the the odds of a recession next year being, you know, rising now to what we would say is probable are driven simply by the fact that monetary policy has become tight, you know, and if it isn't already tight, it's a, it's about to be tight literally next week following the uh, December Fed me- FOMC meeting. You know, we have uh, the Fed. First off, if you believe, you know, the Fed's neutral rate view, right, which is what they publish as their long-term estimate of two and a half percent. I mean, monetary policy is wildly tight right now, and will become even tighter over the next coming months. We've talked quite a bit about how we think that the neutral rate of interest, in other words, the the interest rate that sort of is the stall speed for the economy, we think it's higher. But we published a chart in the report saying that even based on that higher neutral rate view, that you know, monetary policy would become tight very shortly if it isn't already the case. And when you look at hist- history, you referenced, you know, historical comparisons, you know, whenever you see the Fed funds rate, and of course, there's a debate as well about how to measure this and, and, and how, how is it that you can determine whether or not monetary policy is tight. But if you look at the historical relationship between short term interest rates and let's call it either potential GDP growth or, you know, median GDP growth that you've seen over the prior 10 years, it's usually the case when interest rates rise to these levels that you end up having a, a recession. And we had presented a table in the report just in terms of timing that suggests that once you get to these levels, it generally is the case, there's at least one exception that you could point to in the 1991 recession, but it's generally the case that a recession starts within a 12-month period. And given that we're basically there now, that puts us into the window for, uh, for next year. And of course, it's not just a historical comparison about monetary policy and our view of, of, of our definition of what is type policy that is causing us to be, con- you know, or to believe, not just be concerned, but believe that a recession is likely next year. And of course, we're seeing terrible, terrible fo- signs from forward-looking indicators. Conference boards, LEI is extremely weak. We've seen the, you know, the ISM manufacturing index now has fallen below 50 Uh, Lots of indicators like the Philly Fed uh, regional PMI as well as the ISM new orders to inventories ratio had predicted that. And if you're going to look at financial conditions indices, in fact, actually, they have been pointing to meaningful economic weakness. In fact, actually pointing to a contraction that's even, well, I'm sure we'll get to this, but even larger than what I would say is the case. And here's the bottom line. I mean, you know, the Fed will get updated projections about this. Uh, following next week's Fed meeting, but at least as of September, the Fed was saying that they're you know, projecting a rise in the unemployment rate basically to Nehru, which is roughly, let's call it a one percentage point rise. And that has never happened. I mean, the Fed is describing this as a soft landing. That's never happened in post-war US history. A half a percentage point rise in the unemployment rate from its rolling one year low, you might have heard of the Sam, Claudia Sam recession indicator. I mean, it's basically always been associated with a recession, and the mildest U.S. recession has seen the unemployment rate not rise by half a percent, not rise by one percent, but in fact rise by two percentage points, which would you know equate to uh, roughly three million jobs lost um, based on the size of the labor force today. So it's not—I'm not necessarily. The case, and I think you have a you'll have a question about me for you know for me about this. I don't necessarily think that it's not it's going to be a severe recession, but forward-looking indicators, real-time indicators like the ISM manufacturing index and the monetary policy considerations that I that I highlighted. I mean, they all point to you know a, if not a likely recession next year, certainly in early 2024, and that financial markets are going to react to that over the next 12 months.
0: Right. We'll get to uh, the likely severity of the recession in a bit. But before we do, you've highlighted monetary tightening as the main cause of recession. And of course, uh, the extent of this monetary tightening that we're likely to see going forward is a function of what happens to inflation. So what does the recession outlook that you've just described imply about the path for inflation and Fed policy next
1: year? So, as a first point, it is important to note that, um, or I guess admit, given what we've discussed, that U.S. consumer prices uh, now do appear to be rising at a slower pace. So, for example... I mean, we're gonna get the November CPI report next week, but based on the October report that we got in November, I mean, the trimmed mean and median month over month rates of CPI, I've been looking at that a lot, and there was a chart uh, in the outlook about that. It seems to have done a very good job of, um, you know, getting the underlying trend in core CPI, done a good job of reflecting that core trend. You know, it slowed significantly, more so for the trimmed mean measure than the median measure. Uh, but nonetheless, it fell, and that was driven by core good deflation and a significant slowdown in core services ex-shelter. So this isn't really surprising to us. I mean, we've seen several BCA research services that have argued over the past few months, the bank credit analyst as well, that supply side and pandemic related inflation is set to slow. And so the October CPI report is is consistent with that. And that I acknowledge that's an incrementally positive development. That will probably cause the Fed to slow its pace of tightening. So that's the basis, in my view, for this Fed, you know, pause that is being discussed, and in fact, actually, indeed, potentially, you know, outright end its its tightening campaign altogether early next year. Do we have a, a target for 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 core inflation next year? If I, if we thought inflation was going to be back at target levels soon. Uh, and of course, to remind everyone, target is, is 2% or a little bit lower for core PC inflation. If we thought that was gonna happen, I think we'd probably be more optimistic as a firm because we would expect that the Fed would, or, or the Fed would have room to be able to cut interest rates. As I noted earlier, their neutral rate estimate is meaningfully lower than ours. So given the current policy rate, in fact, based on the Fed's view of what is neutral, current monetary policy is very tight. So you could maybe see a scenario in which that would justify them cutting interest rates, but that's not our call, as I said, we expect inflation will slow over the coming year, but it probably will remain above the Fed's target. Core Services Act Shelter, the main driver of that is wage growth. As we saw from the average hourly earnings uh, last Friday, You know developments there have not been positive. Of course, we need to continue to monitor the incoming data. And you know Atlanta, Atlanta Fed's wage tracker, for example, is coming down, but it's coming down from a very elevated level. So maybe 3% core PC inflation by the end of next year and as i said you know in response to that easing the fed will ta- pause its tightening campaign uh, probably at a terminal rate of 5% or maybe even a bit lower that's good news, but the bad news is is that that only solves the rate of change problem for from interest rates. It implies that all the tightening or slowdown and, and weakness in economic indicators that we're seeing is being driven by the fact that interest rates have just been rising at a very fast pace. Um, but ultimately, you know, pausing its tightening campaign without rate cuts doesn't solve the level problem of interest rates. And you know, in my view, certainly the the level is ultimately what matters. If you're trying to buy a good or service, right at the end of the day, it's the price that matters, not whether or not that price has been rising or falling very quickly recently, that sort of affects when you wanna be buying it, but not exactly whether to buy it or not. As I highlighted, even if they just pause and we're talking about anywhere between four and 5% short-term interest rate, I mean, that's above most estimates of the trend in economic growth. So it's, it's difficult from my perspective to see how that's not consistent with the recessionary dynamics that we discussed earlier.
0: So let's entertain the bullish argument a little bit for an alternative positive scenario whereby the US economy avoids a recession next year. Uh, You mentioned inflation. What are the other conditions that need to be met in order for this scenario to occur and how likely is this scenario?
1: So that's an excellent question. And and certainly, uh, you know, I would argue that there are plausible scenarios. And I think that the, to the extent that there is disagreement internally uh, among some strategists at BCA, especially those who are more positive, I think it's just simply that they place higher odds on these scenarios. So to me, there's two plausible scenarios in which the US avoids a recession next year. And the first is, is that the Fed cuts rates before a recession has begun. So this is the clear distinction that we're trying to make between Simply pausing its tightening campaign in other words not raising rates further But actually outright cutting interest rates because as we described, you know based on the meeting next week Policy rates will be tight if they're not already modestly tight or the second scenario is is that uh, we see the emergence Of a new uh, source of support for aggregate demand that is not met by further monetary policy tightening. so I would describe both of these scenarios as plausible, and we, of course, entertain them in our discussions that you were part of as well, Rukaya, in November and, and with Mr. X and Ms. X. But I don't think that at the end of the day that the, either of these scenarios is particularly likely. So in the case of the Fed cutting interest rates, which we you know, sort of alluded to already, I concede the possibility if inflation rapidly converges back towards the Fed's target. Um, because the Fed's neutral rate view is meaningfully lower than the current current policy rate. So you could see a scenario where the Fed was arguing that if, even if they inch pol- short-term rates a bit lower, that monetary policy is still tight from their perspective. We disagree with that, by the way, um, but you could see the rationale from the Fed's perspective for that. But at the end of the day, I mean, the unemployment rate is still below Nehru. So that means that even if you're, whatever your target is for what you think is neutral, you know, monetary policy at whatever interest rate level. I mean, monetary policy should still be tight based on that. Even if inflation comes back down to target because the underlying driver of inflation, aggregate demand, jobs market, et cetera, is still, you know, not in equilibrium. The un- Unemployment rate is below Nehru. So I think that the Fed will be reluctant, and, and many of us think that the Fed will be reluctant to cut interest rates before they see significant weakening in the labor market. That's totally distinct from when they stop raising interest rates but, as I highlighted, that's probably not enough if policy is already tight. And by the time that you see significant weakening in the labor market, by that point, history suggests, going back to my comments earlier about the unemployment rate, that a recession is probably already underway at that point. In the second scenario that I just highlighted, you know it's possible that slowing and well it's not possible slowing inflation should raise real wages for a time in the united states we saw a huge decline in real wages and that's part of why consumer spending was you know um and and consumer confidence indicators were so uh, weak this year and that's certainly the i would expect that that's going to happen because nominal wage growth even if it's going to slow it's going to lag uh, the slowdown in in cpi because that's what happened you know on the upside so that period of time results in a in a rise in real wages and that could act as a, so, a source of support for consumer spending, which, yes, could extend the length of the expansion despite a restrictive monetary policy stance. But I think that the Fed would probably respond to that scenario with further tightening or be very reluctant to cut. And maybe, like I said, still inch interest rates higher a little bit more, even if in- inflation has slowed. And the reason for that is because a further acceleration in consumer spending, which has not yet collapsed, by the way, right? and we're sitting with an unemployment rate that's already meaningfully below nehru I mean, s- further acceleration in, in consumption could push the unemployment rate even lower than it currently is rather than higher, which is what the Fed is aiming for in order to get back to equilibrium. And then that feeds into an, an even further rise in real wages. So that's the sort of you know, conceptual scenario that you could start talking about a wage price spiral. And I, I just think that the Fed is, you know, inflation expectations haven't haven't broken out to the upside. You know, we're not there yet, but I think the Fed would be very reluctant to allow that to happen uh, without there being, you know, incrementally more tightening, um, you know, in terms of short term interest rates. It could push. This is a scenario where we could see. I think the more likely, you know, conclusion from this is that's a scenario where, in probably instead of certainly, not a recession in the first half of next year, and that may even push the recession into early 2024, because um, that's when we when we started discussing this. There's a wide range internally of when we think that might happen. Uh, so I would buy that that it could potentially extend the cycle into the beginning of 2024. But I still don't see that as a scenario in which the the U.S. ultimately avoids a recession. And as we discuss risky asset prices. You know they they anticipate um, you know an eventual contraction in output. So I'd st- I'd still be saying in that scenario, uh, my judgment would be, and I think the judgment of a lot of other strategists at BCA that you would still see a market response. It would just it would probably lengthen the window, the tactical window, uh, under which risky asset prices might be rallying over the next several months while inflation is falling.
0: So let's go back to the question of the likely severity of the recession. So the last two recessions were quite severe. Uh, is there a reason to expect that the next recession will be as severe as the last two? Or is there a cause to make you believe that there could be a relatively mild contraction in economic activity?
1: Right. Thank you, because I, I sort of teased that outcome when we were talking earlier. So this this is where the good news is, I'd say, because I, we made the case in the outlook that the next recession is much more likely to be a mild or average one and not a severe one for, you know, for several reasons. Although when I finish up my answer to your question here, I will present to you what I would say is probably the biggest risk to that view. But just to start it off, I mean, we showed a chart in the outlook that showed the rise in the unemployment rate that's occurred during each of the post-World War II recessions. We excluded the very brief recession in in early 1980, but the point that I'm about to make will hold anyways, even if you include it. You know, when you look at that chart in the report, no, this is audio only, but I mean, you know, there are the recessions in which you saw a very large rise in the unemployment rate, so the historically severe recessions in the United States. They had clear, aggravating factors that made the condition, you know, the contraction worse. The number one, You know, the largest rise in the unemployment rate, excluding the pandemic, of course, was 2008, 2009. Well, we know what happened there. We had a global financial crisis, subprime, you know, financial crisis that morphed into a global financial crisis. The next one was the 1981, 82 recession. I mean, inflation expectations were elevated for an extremely long time, Paul Volcker, you know was dead set in bringing inflation expectations back towards target and raised interest rates to an extraordinarily high level. Not what we're forecasting is going to happen next year. nineteen seventy three to seventy five we had the oil crisis, uh, very, very manufacturing intensive u s. economy. Uh, you know, that rise in oil prices was permanent, rendered a lot of production permanently, um, you know, or a lot of productive capacity to be uh, to be redundant. in nineteen fifty three. Uh, even further away from what what t- U.S. economy looks like today, in in, in terms of its characteristics. Um, but we had a huge contraction in government spending from the end of the Korean War. By contrast, you look at all the milder recessions; these were just seemingly triggered by tight monetary policy. In most of those cases, you know the Fed funds rate, uh, you know, or three month T bill yield rose to above either potential GDP growth estimates or uh, what g- nominal GDP growth had averaged, let's say, over the prior decade. You know, that implies that the next U.S. recession should be on the milder end of the spectrum because it it would be triggered by exactly that same condition today of monetary policy simply becoming too tight. And I would say there's another couple of arguments to add to that. U.S. households have delivered significantly based on household debt as a percent of disposable income. Um, And the debt service ratio, amazingly, not surprisingly, but just, you know, it's it's an astounding thing to say, it's only starting, just starting to rise because many homeowners in the United States have locked themselves into lower mortgage rates on the corporate sector side yes higher government bond yields should feed more directly to companies debt service burdens but we've done some modeling on this and there was a chart in the outlook showing it that there doesn't seem to be much fear you know of an atypically severe recession stemming from non-financial corporate sector indebtedness the measure that we have you know shocking uh, bond yields doesn't rise to a new high not even close to it so that doesn't seem to be you know a pinch point And then two other points. I mean, we've seen excess savings accumulate during the pandemics, not as large as we originally thought because we did get some data revisions recently from the BEA, Um, but the bottom line is the reason why recessions happen is because uh, people who actually haven't lost their jobs start raising their savings rate raised precautionary savings because they're concerned that they might lose their jobs. The direct impact of those who have who, who are um, you know who become unemployed is actually not the major factor. It's everyone else worrying that they're going to lose their job. Well if you have excess savings in the economy, that means less reason to raise your precautionary savings. So it would probably still happen because fear is a powerful emotion, but it means that you know, the ultimate rise in precautionary savings that you're gonna need to see is lower, which means lower reduction in consumer spending, which means a smaller, comparatively smaller, rise in the unemployment rate. And finally, we've seen labor be very scarce during this recovery. Uh, Participation rate has not recovered to its pre-pandemic level. You know, and so that's been driven heavily by the reduced participation of those aged 55 and older. I think there's a good reason to say that businesses might be reluctant to shed as much labor during a recession, as they otherwise might be inclined to, so they can retain key workers, and that, of course, if it occurs, implies a comparatively modest rise in the unemployment rate. To me, the big risk of a severe recession, aside from there being some structural factor that we're, you know, not aware of, uh, you know, something lurking in the financial system, like in, you know, in 2008, 2009, but I doubt that very much, given the amount of regulation that has come into play since then. I'd say the big risk, frankly, is this uh, is another major upward shock to inflation. Because, of course, with inflation expectations where they are, even though they haven't unanchored, that would severely raise the risk that they will. And it would cause the Fed to really jack up interest rates even well beyond the 5% terminal value that is being sort of quoted or or markets expectation right now. That could be caused by a very significant escalation in the war in Ukraine or maybe another majorly impactful shock to the global supply chain, perhaps instigated um, by widespread lockdowns in China, if China's efforts to walk back from its zero COVID policy fail. There's good reason to believe even if that walk back does fail, the export sector might not be you know, substantially impacted because we did see major lockdowns in some Chinese cities over the past year and it doesn't seem like Chinese exports were meaningfully Uh, disturbed, but I'm I'm talking about risks here. And certainly if we saw, you know, either of those uh, events, another huge shock to energy costs, or, you know, the reversal of this decline in shipping costs and global logistics uh, improvement that we've seen over the past year, if those things reverse at this crucial moment when inflation expectations have risen pretty significantly and the unemployment rates below NARU, I mean, I'd say that that would make me a little bit more concerned.
0: Uh, Now from investor standpoint, the reason why they really care about this outlook and probability of a recession is because of what it implies in terms of or of how financial markets are likely to perform next year. So based on this economic outlook that you've just described of a mile to average US recession, how should investors position themselves in 2023?
1: So that's, of course, the ultimate question, right? So, I mean, let's just start first with the equity market, because that's the, of course, the major asset that you know most investors, most BCA clients are interested in. You know, the uh, global XUS stocks are very cheap relative to US stocks, but we have a hard time believing that we're gonna see a decoupling in level terms. So in other words, you know, if you have a view about where the S&P is gonna go level-wise in a recession, then you, you know, probably gonna see the same thing for global XUS stocks, at least for a time. And, you know, we did some modeling in the outlook, and it does not seem likely that the US equity market is priced for a recession. Despite the fact that we've seen a sell-off already, Uh, and a mild recession would imply a uh, comparatively mild peak to trough decline. That ignores the fact that the starting point for valuations was extremely elevated. So there is an extra amount of sell-off that you would expect Uh, would happen for the equity market in the U.S. recession, just to account for the fact that valuations were extreme, driven by extremely low U.S. government bond yields and the belief that that would be, you know, perhaps persist for a very long time. I just simply don't think that we're going to be going back to, uh, you know, a 10-year treasury yield that's below 2%. It could be the case in a severe recession, but I doubt that that would happen in a mild recession. And that's a totally different level than where we were at, you know, in 2020, 2021, and what equities were being priced off of. So the conclusion there, unfortunately, I mean, We we quoted a specific number, we said that the S&P is likely to fall to between 3,100 and 3,300 in a recession scenario, which is obviously lower than we currently are at. US equities account for 60% of global equity market cap. So we would be recommending, and did indeed recommend this in the outlook, that investors, at least on a 12-month time horizon, So if you're thinking about this on an annual basis, ignoring for a second the potential for there to be a tactical rally that might give you a better exit point, the recommendation was to underweight global stocks versus bonds on a 12-month time horizon, and with the acknowledgement, of course, that stocks might rally in the near term if inflation slows considerably on this view that maybe the Fed will end up cutting interest rates and that a recession um, might be avoided, even though we don't think that that's a likely outcome. We're waiting for more convincing signs that long maturity bond yields have peaked in order to move to a long duration stance. If we get a revision about the terminal rate or frankly just continued interest rate hikes, it's possible that the long end will move back to where it was before, or at least re-challenge the high that we saw recently. So we're not there yet in terms of moving to an outright long duration stance, but we expect that recommendation will come soon, probably in Q1. Thinking about commodities, we expect that cyclically sensitive commodities like oil and industrial metals will decline alongside stock prices as recessionary dynamics take hold. A few caveats, oil isn't likely to have that much downside because we expect strong discipline on the supply side from OPEC 2.0 or OPEC plus, however you wanna characterize it. Uh, obviously, if, if the recession is more severe or if we see outsized declines in EM oil demand, then that changes that forecast, but it would sort of, the way we set it in the outlook was sort of flat to down for oil prices for a full year. Uh, with the full caveat that if we see, you know, a major supply side event, escalation of the war, you know, in Ukraine with Russia, I mean, then all bets are off, and we would be pointing that would be pointing to initially higher oil prices, and then probably a more severe recession, as I described earlier. Metals prices, I'd say, I'd still be sticking with a bearish view in, in the first half of 2023. They could rally starting in Q2 or around the middle of next year if we see compelling signs of a significant reacceleration in Chinese economic activity. I know that there's a lot of investors that are getting excited about that. I think the end of zero COVID will be a very messy uh, start and stop kind of phase. So we're gonna have to wait to see how likely that is and when the timing of that will be. But certainly we could sort of see maybe a better second half of next year for metals. But from where we start today, I think that that sort of leads you to a bearish conclusion. And finally on the dollar, we're bullish on the dollar, but we would advise that clients have that view on a short leash The US dollar, first off, is extraordinarily expensive, Um, but then even if you're gonna move beyond valuations, it's reliably counter-cyclical. So it's probably gonna rally in response to recessionary fears, but at some point, the market's focus will probably shift to the relative real interest rate story, which is just straightforwardly dollar bearish because uh, the Fed has much more room to cut interest rates than, for example, Europe does. You know, And it's been that divergence that's been driving the dollar you know, so much higher. So given that we've had a pullback in the dollar, I think it's we're more confident that there's going to be a recessionary rise as, as you get this sort of portfolio flow effect and the negative correlation between the dollar and, and global stock prices works its effect. But I think that that's probably not going to last very long. So once you see that initial phase, you should be putting the dollar on downgrade watch.
0: Thank you very much for joining me this week, Jonathan.
1: Thanks a lot, Rikaya. It was a pleasure to be here.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Quick Takes podcast. We'll be bringing you weekly quick takes with BCA strategists on a range of macro and market topics. Stay tuned for next week's episode in which I will catch up with my colleague, Rob Robis, who heads up BCA's global fixed income strategy service for a discussion of his key views for global bond markets in 2023.